Hello, listeners. You've probably noticed we haven't released a podcast in a while. Sorry about that. We actually haven't recorded any since the last one, but I did convince Jeff to do a fun little episode about our time at the True False Film Fest. Take a listen. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I didn't know that we were recording things, but oh my god, okay. Sorry. It's okay. I'm driving a car, and Bobby is trying to record us at the same time. I'm just sitting, like a, a bump on a log. But uh, we're going. We're we're going to a film festival. Well, technically, we're here. Are you excited? I'm very excited. What are you looking forward to? All the documentaries that we're gonna see. Jeff, how many how many years in a row have you gone to this film fest? This is ten years for me, Bob. This is your your. Uh, Centennial. No, you're... No. <laughs> what would you even call that? Your dime. This is your dime. My... Uh, let's see. I, it's not a bison. What? It, it's some... Sen- no. Mm, I'm not going to even try. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a decade. I'm celebrating a decade. Ten years of documentary films. That's right. What is the True False Film Festival? It's a festival in Columbia, Missouri that is uh, completely documentary focused. And uh, a lot of the big ones that went to Sundance, the next stop for them is here in Columbia, Missouri. So films that are basically doing the festival circuit. Correct. Okay. Why Why Columbia, Missouri? Why the U, why, why Mizzou? I'm, I mean, I believe that the founders are former journalism students Columbia has a very good journalism school, but basically they just wanted to have a film festival here, and they started it, uh, I don't know, 16-ish years ago, and or maybe a little bit longer than that. Okay, this person is going to go past me. Now I can get into this lane. Uh, ha- um, but they, yeah, they wanted to start a film festival here, and it started very small, but now it's like into the tens of thousands of people in attendance every wow. year. So you've watched it grow over the years. I have watched it grow. When was the first year that you noticed, like, this has really gotten quite big? Jeez, I don't know. I mean, somewhere in the middle there, because the first one I went to was in 2009. And then... Trying to think. I don't know, maybe like 2013? You're like, oh shit. 2012, 2013? Yeah, it definitely seemed bigger. Interesting. What are you excited about seeing this weekend? All of them. I mean, I don't... I would need to go look at my list. I like to know as little going in as possible about the movies that I'm seeing. I know we're seeing a Mr. Rogers documentary. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I think we're also seeing... We're going to see one on Trump today. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Because it was something called, like, Not My President or something, or, like, The New President. I think it's That's Our President. That's Our President. And uh, I couldn't remember if it was Trump or it was just maybe, like analyzing new presidents or something. I don't know. I think it's Trump. I think it's just Trump. All but Trump I also time. but I also don't know. I like to go in not knowing and be surprised afresh by these by these documentaries. Sure. Well, uh, I hope that uh uh-huh. I hope that uh, it's it's a good year for you for it's, your for your dime. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> My dime year. We'll check in a little later. Yeah. And uh, record some impressions. There you go. Yeah. After this, we had just enough time to check into our motel and dash over to get our tickets for each show before our first film started. 
The line was long and Jeff was walking so quickly I could barely keep up with him. We were cutting it so close with our first film that neither of us ended up getting seats and had to stand either in the back of the theater or off to the side. When you first enter a film screening at True False, you want to get there early. I've gone with Jeff five or six of the ten times he's gone, and we typically sit in the front, which is often unoccupied as attendees fill in closer to the middle. And each screening is warmed up with a musical performance by local and traveling musicians they warmly refer to as buskers. After that first screening, Jeff had to hurry to his next film. We had mostly identical schedules as we typically planned it out that way, but film number two for us wasn't the same. I had some time to kill before my next screening that first night, so I took an Uber to Best Buy to buy a replacement laptop charger for way too much money, and then Uber back to catch a screening of Grace Jones, Bloodlight, and Bambi. Jeff and I didn't record anything that night. And it wasn't until the next night after seeing the movie Shirkers and walking the two miles back to our hotel room that we gave a kind of meandering conversation about a few of the films we'd seen so far. Take a listen. So we are just walking back from uh, the campus where uh, the True False Film Festival is happening. It is night two. From Jesse Hall. It's dark out now. Almost midnight. Uh... Yeah, we, we saw like five films today, and then uh, what we've been doing is walking the two miles back to the motel instead of driving. It just takes out an element that, you know, you don't have to worry about parking and stuff like that, but then you're walking off the pizza you ate today and the cookies you had at 9 p.m. and all that stuff. According to the app uh, that I use, we've already walked approximately 13,000 steps today. Holy shit and more once we get back to the hotel. Not doing too bad. We're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. Uh, so the last movie we saw of the evening was Shirkers. Um, Bob, tell me how you felt about Shirkers. I felt very strongly <laughs> about Shirkers. Um, I thought that the title worked in a lot of good ways. Uh, number one, well, for, okay, so let me just tell you what it's about because so you, usually when you're hearing this podcast, what you're hearing is us talking about a movie that you have probably seen or don't care to see. And, uh, but today we are reviewing a film that's films that are in the festival circuit. So there's a really good chance that you haven't seen it yet and that it might come out in a year or something. So we're just going to tell you as a, a sort of recommendation, uh, Shirkers is a documentary that is about it's a it's a document it's a it's a movie about a movie it's a documentary about a movie that uh the the filmmaker herself made when she was like 16 and uh the footage was sort of uh what would you what's the word you would use 
the footage from the past or the footage presently? The footage from the past. So the footage from the past was from an actual film that she tried to get make, make excuse me, get made with uh, two friends of hers and an older gentleman who was their film teacher but who turned out to be a much more mysterious fellow. Uh, yeah, he was sort of a narcissistic, I would say almost a sociopath, but definitely a pathological liar. And uh, he sort of hoarded the film. Like, they, they shot a whole film. Like, she wrote a film. She wrote sort of her passion project. And then he took over as the director and, I guess, like, you know, photograph. What's the... Director of photography. That's the one. <laughs> so he, he, like, sat on the footage and for like months and then he wrote he made her a tape that was like I don't know why you guys are giving me phone calls asking me where the footage is uh hopefully those phone calls will stop and it's like what the fuck dude and then he like never contacts them again um except to mysteriously send them uh a box of VHSs that are all blank that was the most fucked up part I wonder if there was an element of that maybe he thought they weren't blank. Like, maybe he tried and failed because he was technically an idiot. But... Maybe. I don't know, man. It was it was fucked up. Uh, but the thing that... I don't know. Like, the thing that first sort of, like, spoke to me about this film is that she and her friends were, like, a gaggle of weirdos. Much like I was in a gaggle of weirdos when I was 16. And... But she, they were in Singapore... Where, which is a, a very different society, but, like, watching the film that they were making, it was clear that, like, we shared some common interests, like, zines and punk and, like, weird underground movies and, you know, stuff like that. D- did you feel that way? Yeah, it takes you back to that, t- like, I mean, you grew up in Iowa, I grew up in Iowa. I don't know that it's the same thing as Singapore, but it certainly, there was a lot more work to find out about what was cool and to, like, the zine thing, you know, I didn't find out about that until I went to college. Yeah, I remember hearing about zines when I was on the internet in chat rooms. Uh, as we discussed earlier this weekend, I w- there was a period of my life where I was, like, very into, like, chat rooms and meeting strangers from around the country in a chat room. And then I remember asking my older cousin, my older, cooler cousin Molly, what a zine was. And I, I think she must have explained what it was, but, like... I didn't totally understand until someone sent me a zine that was very, it was very like, I don't know, you could tell there was a lot of time put into it and a lot of money put into like a nice color copy. It was like, this is crazy how, like a nice laser printer, like. That's an elaborate zine. Yeah, like the zines that I see at ZineFest now are very like Sharpie marker and like Kinko's photocopier, like they are quite cheaply made and I think that there's a charm there that it feels know. like that's how it was supposed to be. Like, yeah. that's how it started. Yeah. I remember there was something on Twitter recently where someone was trying to, like, I don't know, talk about what you needed to do to start a zine. And it was very elaborate. And it was like, this is, th- whoever made this never made a zine <laughs> because they were talking about, like, all the money you had to put up. And it was like, you had to put up some money, but it's like photocopy money. It's not like, investment money or something like yeah they're talking about a magazine i don't know um anyway the movie though yeah i don't know gaggle of weirdos underground films um she takes like a weird road trip 
uh, across the U.S. that... In the 90s with him. In the 90s with the man. It was the two of them. And, like, you could tell that something weird was going to happen. Um, thankfully, nothing, like, horrible happened. But, like, he does sort of make a move on her. And... I don't know, like, it sounded like he was obsessed with her in a way, like, later, right? Yeah. I mean, I think for a long time he was obsessed with her, but, like, the filmmaker at the end was talking about how I think we all know a George in our life. George is the name of the guy Yeah. Uh, who was obsessed with her, there which was... is also my last name. Hi, everybody. Womp womp, uh, but uh, I think, like... For me, it was the thing of like, oh yeah, everybody knows the serial liar. Right. Like that's what that's what this guy was to me is the guy who, oh, you're bullshitting me all the time. Right. And it takes me a very long time to realize that that is your mo. Yeah, your elaborate lies, your like weird backstories. It's like that's a crazy story. Right. And why would you even make that up? Right. What do you have to gain from me <laughs> believing this about you? Like, you don't respect me, so why do you need my validation? Right. I don't know. There were a couple of people that came to mind when I saw that. Oh, for sure. Like, I, I agree with her completely that everybody knows that person. It's, it's funny, though, because as I was thinking about it, the part of me was like, I, I, part of me wishes that she would spend less time. Okay, so what happens after... Like, so, uh, do we spoil stuff? Dare we? Dare we spoil? I don't know, man. I feel like this is going to be on Netflix, so it's I don't want to give away too much. So let's say that the later part of the movie, she goes on a quest to find answers about George. Yeah. And that's that's a good enough premise. But, like, so part of me is thinking, like, I feel like the strength of, of this film is the teenage film that you made. Yeah. Not this... this this uh, like narcissist, like you shouldn't give this narcissist the time of day. Huh. But at the same time, I totally get that impulse because there have been narcissists in my life, and I'm like, I want to know everything about why you are this fucked up. Yeah, and I want to talk to everyone you've hurt. I think it would have been easier to ignore him if he hadn't, you know, specifically devastated a portion of her life so specifically. Right. Just think of what would have happened to her life. So here's what I think would have happened. I think that the film would have come out and become maybe like a cult classic. Like, you can't believe how weird this movie is. And it would have gone on to her making other movies. Yeah. Like, I think that she could have had a film career. I thought that the look of the movie that they did was incredibly impressive. Like, the beautiful Kodak color was like... Totally. Really warm and stimulating and... Well, especially, like, how big DIY film was in the 90s. Like, yeah. you know, every indie studio was looking for the next, like, credit card film yeah. that was made on nothing that was interesting that would be talked about on the circuit by critics. Yeah. And, like, spread around, you know, by college students. Like, that happened so many different times. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah, but it, it was it was a good it was a good movie, and I'm glad that she was finally able to do something with it. Um, I don't know. I kept brainstorming other things that she could have done with the footage, the Shirkers footage, uh -huh. uh, like making a like some sort of comic book thing or like a silent film or I don't know. Something. I mean, to a degree, she did make a silent film. Like she uses good 
chunks of footage yeah. in this movie. She just can't do anything else with it because he only kept the the reels and not the the sound reels. Yeah. Which <sighs> is a bummer. Yeah. And it was funny because like I didn't even realize that until she said it. I was like, she's narrating a lot. And I didn't ever think, like, we're not hearing any of the audio. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. There's always something funny about the closing... The closing film of any true-false night. Because it's like, it's always in Jesse or the Missouri Theater. And... It's just a really late sort of rallying audience that are just, I don't know. Do you think that they have like a specific, they must plan in such a way where it's like, this film will be the headliner. We'll show it at 10 p.m. And only the dedicated fans will see it or something like that. I think so. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. They they plan out the time. Like, you're going to see way more Netflix, HBO, Focus Features documentaries toward toward the later portion of the day prime time if you will what was the one we saw last night uh at 10 yeah it was uh american animals oh yes american animals that one was good too yeah uh a a, a mishmash of fiction and non-fiction yeah we should cross the street while we can okay as we cross the street we see cars in the distance <laughs> approaching and a lumberjack with a, with a wily axe Uh-oh. coming at us. There's no sidewalk here. We just gotta go up. You chose the side without a sidewalk. No, no, no. The sidewalk's there. It's just up. <sighs> I guess I'll take your word for it. No sidewalk so far. Oh, here we go. The sidewalk all along. I told you. You didn't. You didn't tell me shit. Hmm. <laughs> what a beautiful full moon. You think there's a werewolf out here seeing the same moon we are? Could be, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> you got a cough. <coughs> you got a cough on you. Excuse me. <sighs> <sighs> Do you think werewolves dream? <laughs> this conversation is taking an odd turn. Uh, <laughs> I would assume yes. Yeah. I mean, even dogs dream, man. Then we're in agreement. Werewolves dream. Yeah. Uh, so American Animals. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Okay. Uh, I liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed American Animals. Uh, I like the kid who is also in The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I think he's gonna go places. He's spooky. He is spooky. He's Creeps good at being out. spooky. Yeah. But he also like I just I feel like he's got a weird charisma about him. Uh-huh. That's gonna take him far. Yeah. I don't think we've seen the last of that kid. What's that guy's name who played the the bad kid? Was it something Jesse something? I don't know his acting name. But he's in uh, Legion. Wait. Yeah. Yeah, Legion. Yes. And the uh, uh, American Horror Story series, and you know the more about him than I do. I don't. I never. I've never watched American Horror Story. He's pretty good in it. He's spooky in that. All right. 
Both those kids are spooky. <laughs> I didn't know the other two kids. No, they were no ones. No names. Yeah, they were new. It's always interesting when a documentary filmmaker tries to go fiction. Yeah. I still haven't finished Wormwood, the Errol Morris series. I thought it was good, but I don't think it needed to be six episodes. I think you could have tightened that into a feature film. Yeah. Gonna say. I just, uh, I don't know. I wasn't, I don't know how with it I was after the first episode. I was like, eh. I was with it. I, anything, you throw MK Ultra my way, I'm interested. <laughs> so you must love a, a, a little TV show called Stranger Things. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that. Did you see that article that was saying that uh, Netflix wants to do, like, they want to dump, like, 700 shows onto the, the site? Yeah, I'm not, I'm tired, man. That's what that article was saying, was like, how could you possibly keep up? Like, clearly Amazon will surpass you because they will continue curating specialized content that stands out, whereas you will just be like, you know, flipping through the channels and never landing on anything. We'll see which model works up. I think, like, the Netflix model is going to work in a way that, you know, there's something for everybody. So they're going to be just throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. And then, even if it's a, a niche audience, that gets them, like, a several thousand more new subscribers. and. As long as it gets some new subscribers, they're happy. Yeah, I suppose no one's going to unsubscribe. I think that's the thing. They're just relying on the laziness of people not to unsubscribe. Yeah. Uh, but it makes me sad to think that a movie like Shirkers will get buried in a sea of content and it won't find its audience because it's one of 700 titles. I think that's absolutely correct. I think the other thing that's sad is that with it working on, you know, 700 new titles at the moment, like, that gives it almost no room for back titles. Yeah. And so, like, this idea that Netflix or HBO or some other streaming service was going to take over for uh, video stores turns out to be just bullshit because, uh, you know, you, uh, of older movies, you're going to maybe find, like, uh, a small fraction I on, think... on any of these sites. And then, like, you can't actually use these sites to appreciate the, the history of cinema and or television. Pick your poison. I think the thing that I've been wanting from Netflix for a while is a way to sort of curate my own playlist the way you can with YouTube or Spotify. Uh -huh. Like, I want to make my own 90s mix, you know? Like, I want to dump a bunch of 90s movies in a thing or a bunch of, like, heartbreak movies. Like, I don't want their suggested things anymore. I agree with that. I think that's interesting, but I also think that, you know, if you went looking for 90s movies on that service, you'd be very disappointed with the selection you found. Yeah. Like, there would be so many where you'd be like, oh, that's a great one, I'll put it on here. Oh, I can't, because Netflix does not have the rights. And so, you know. I just mean, like, that of what's be... on there, like. Sure, but I just mean, like, a video store was a much more comprehensive yeah. 
service than any of these streaming sites have been. And that's a huge bummer. It's just weird. It's like content is like, I don't even know, like a dime a dozen doesn't even, I don't know. It's like the old stuff, the backlog turns out to have just been a new route to getting enough revenue to produce new stuff. Yeah. How oh, weird. Yeah, I think it kind of sucks. <laughs> so what's the future then? I don't know either. Is it a bubble? I don't know. I don't know if it's a bubble because they're clearly getting all like unless people suddenly decide they're bored with it. I think I think they're here to stay. Yeah. So either some other service is going to have to step in and devote itself specifically to back catalog stuff, you know, because you've got so many, pick your decade, you've got yeah. hundreds if not thousands of movies that could be on these services that just aren't, that people would love to watch. Wouldn't it be cool if celebrities could do playlists on Netflix the way they do on Spotify where it's like, here's songs that influenced Kendrick, but like, here are David Fincher's top recommendations the movies you can't miss i think uh i think that'd be great that'd be cool i don't see it happening anytime <laughs> yeah i'm Where very the... pessimistic about this what's the parking lot we have to walk through we've got a minute okay we got a fast sign is it fast enough we can drive away oh we got one of them famous missouri hills we do uh we also saw Love Means Zero today. How'd you like that one? I like that one. Yeah, it's that about, one was a good one. It's about tennis. Yeah. As I mansplained to you earlier, the title yeah. is a reference to... <laughs> As you explained to the person who has played tennis. <laughs> love, love is, is the, a word that means zero in tennis. With a word for the score of, of zero. And it's a double meaning. Why is it a double meaning, Jeff? Because uh, the instructor, Ber Bertolucci, Ber Bert Nick, Nick Baratoli, Baratoli, there it is. He was a was a taskmaster of a teacher who would really drive you mentally and uh, brought Agassiz up through the ranks back in the late '80s, early '90s. Helped him win his first Grand Slam they championship. They kind, of kind of a dream team. They, yeah, at the time, everybody saw them as such. But it turns out he was kind of an unapologetic dick in ways. And that's why love means nothing. Right. It didn't matter that they had a good relationship. He cut it off. He just cut it off like that. The way dicks do. He, Agassi won a Grand Slam and he was like, all right, we're done here. Done with Agassi. Bye. Even though Agassi felt like... He was a father figure. Yeah. You can't just dump people from your life. Yeah. You have to continue. If you want the na the nature of your relationship to change, the you strength, have to just talk about it. The strength of that documentary is uh, Bertoli's personality. Like, without, yeah. without him, that movie falls flat very yeah. quickly. But also, like, without him... Uh, being like 
the eye of this hurricane, you wouldn't have all of the great interviews from the other people talking about what a character he is. It's true. Like, he's, yeah. Well, and it's a movie about him, so, like, I guess, of course, he's going to be a character in it. But, like, but. let's say he died, and you didn't get a chance to interview him as a primary source. It would be harder. It would be harder It'd to be, make that movie. Yeah. Like, you could make it, but it wouldn't be as good, because those scenes where he and the filmmaker are sort of, like, breaking, I guess not the fourth wall, but, like... But, but yeah. when he's talking directly to... The documentarian. Yeah, he's addressing the filmmaker by name. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, you, you get to see his personality directly rather than in like small snippets from found footage or something. Yeah. And it gets very meta as he's like, as he's basically coaching the filmmaker on yeah. how, to, how, to, how to make the movie. Yeah, he's like, I, if I'm a character that is devoid of meaning, it's your job to find meaning from me. And I believe in you. I believe you can do it. Yeah. And it's like, he's right. <laughs> he understands exactly what the filmmaker's job is. It was, it was good. And I think he succeeds. Yeah. <laughs> so that one was interesting. Uh, won't you be my neighbor? Oh, yeah. That one was a, a real, a real tearjerker. Yeah. I thought it was all right. It, you didn't like it? it? I, no, I liked it, but it did, not, it did not reveal as much about Fred Rogers Oh yeah, as I thought it might. You kind of thought you might get more dirt? No, I didn't think I would get dirt. I don't think Fred Rogers has much dirt, but I did think I would get more insight into why he is the way he is, or why he was the way he was, rather. Like the origin? The origin of Fred? A little bit more origin. I think part of the problem is that there's been so much sharing. I don't know if this is for you too, but for me personally, everybody can hear this car alarm on the podcast probably. Sorry guys. Past the car alarm. Uh, but it's a wonderful sound though. Oh, it's a great sound. But I feel like, I don't know if this is true for you as well, but my Facebook feed is full of people sharing Fred Rogers content of like the look for the helpers quote uh-huh. the meeting up on Capitol Hill yeah where he convinces them to save PBS uh, the speech that he gives when he gets that lifetime achievement award for television where he's like everybody take 30 seconds to think of the person who cares about them the most in the world and so like when they're revealing these things in the documentary I'm like, I know this. I've already seen this. I'm familiar with Fred Rogers. Yeah. And I'm familiar with some of the deep cuts of Fred Rogers. Don't give me the cuts. But what? Give what, me more of the, like when they were talking to the, the, the dudes who worked behind the scenes yeah. on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that was more interesting to me because it was revealing things about Fred Rogers that I hadn't, when they were talking to Mr. McFeely and to Officer Clemens. Yes, to Officer Clemens. What's funny is uh, those were more interesting to me. The audio of Officer Clemens being like, Mr. Rogers told me he loved me. And he was like, were you talking to me? And he said, yes, I've been telling you that for two years. He's (laughs) like, I finally realized it. That was on NPR like a week ago. So like that was content I had already heard too. Right. Yeah. There's just a lot. We're we are at a critical mass of peak Rogers content. I mean, people love Fred Rogers. I just I guess like because people love Fred Rogers, 
you should know as the filmmaker going in, I don't know, I guess you can't assume that everybody's seen him saving things on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I et mean, cetera, like, the, et cetera. The, like, the audience that we were with when he was on Capitol Hill and the guy was like, well, I don't know what you want me to say. I mean, I guess you just earned your $20 million or whatever. Like, the the peop, the human audience that we were with applauded. Yeah, they cheered. As if that was the first time they'd heard that. I think, I think part of it, part of the tough thing with that movie is just I can be a tough crowd sometimes. Sure. In that I've, you know, for informational documentaries, it's like, I know this information, get to the information I don't know. Yeah. And so that's on me, you not demand, on the filmmaker. You demand them to move you. I don't demand they move me. I demand they inform me. Yeah. I demand they move me. <laughs> if you can't move me, then I'm not informed. Well, that can also be true. Yeah. Uh, the, the part where I almost cried at the Fred Rogers movie was when he's at a commencement speech. <laughs> he's giving a commencement speech. And he says something like, uh, you do not need to be sensational for other people to love you. Yeah. And it's like, what? <laughs> Why are you looking at my soul, Fred Rogers? <laughs> you from beyond the grave? Yeah, man. He, he touched a lot of hearts. He was good yeah. at that. I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, to watch his speech when he gets the Lifetime I forget. I think it was a Lifetime Emmy Award. I think that's what the evening was for. Ah. And so he got the Lifetime Achievement Award. He goes up there and gives this speech that, like, you know, everybody's just being jokey Hollywood all night. And then he's Mr. Rogers being being all, think for 30 seconds, I'll keep time on my watch, of, like, <laughs> the person who's loved you most in your life and helped you along the way. And, like... It's dead silence on live TV for 30 seconds. Which he and loves. Like, he loves dead silence. He's, you know, they're panning the camera to all these stars that are like, fuck, now I'm having this moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I liked about, I mean, like, even though you've seen that speech, the film does something amazing by making the talking heads also do that. Yeah. And then... Like, it just looks at their faces, and you are seeing their faces, and you are feeling that, and then... It's definitely uh, still an emotional moment. And then they and then they each list the person that they thought of, and then the, you hear the filmmaker say, I was singing my mom. Yeah. And then the film is dedicated to his mom, and it's like, fuck! Damn it! They did it right. Yeah. Um, I still liked it. I think it was still an effective documentary. I think it's going to be huge later. You said it was Focus Features? Uh, that one... I think that one was Focus Features, yeah. So the distribution it's that, the, yeah. It's the guy, he did 20 Feet from Stardom before he did this. Okay. Then he's, yeah, that movie, I think, won Best Documentary that year. So. Several years ago now. This is definitely. Was that like 2013, 2012, 2013? That sounds right. We saw it at True False. Yeah. That was one of my that best been the, That might have been one of your first TFs. Yeah. Um. And then we saw Crime Plus Punishment. Crime Plus Punishment, damn. Yeah, that one was good. Uh, now there, like, I knew some of that story, but I was getting a lot of behind-the-scenes information and a lot more context Yeah. for a story about policing by the numbers in New York City Yeah. that, uh, that I really enjoyed. Yeah. That one was, that one got me pretty good. 
Yeah, I was I was leaning. For, I feel like how much I lean forward is like how much my hair is being blown back in a way. You know, for like, sure. Yeah, like the more engaged I feel, because they're like, you know, I've gone to real snoozers at this fest too. <laughs> you did because, not off today at one. <laughs> either because it's boring or because, like I said, like I know the information already. But this is one where I was like, oh, I do. I don't know where this is going. Yeah. I'm ready for more. It, it just, it, it makes you... Okay, so let's talk about the movie. So, Crime and Punishment, uh, it talks about the quotas that New York City police officers have that un- unofficially they have. Like, They're supposed on, to be illegal at this it's point. It's illegal, because, and like, why is it illegal? Because... Uh, they're just looking for people to arrest so they can fulfill the quota. People who haven't done anything wrong, like, and they want to fulfill the quota because it's a huge budget in, uh, influx for them. Of it's a an infusion of cash. It's just it's into the city. The they get money from these summonses that they provide, or that they write up for people. It makes them. It forces them to go into court. They have to pay fines. These fines go to the city. It sweeps them into the criminal justice system in a way that is irretractable. Right. Also, like... $900 million a year. In just arrests and fines and summonses. Yeah. It's just an untenable system because... if So they love to tout how much they have reduced crime. But if they've reduced crime that much... Why do they have to make so many arrests? Like, if, if they truly improved the culture in New York City, then they don't need as many police as they are pumping into the system. Right. And then they're making these poor people, like, the, I mean, I don't know. Like, it's, it's, it's a truly vicious cycle. Yeah. And it's also interesting because, so, it follows around the NYPD 12 who were whistleblowers who were like, we were reprimanded for not making more arrests when we saw no crimes happening. Right. Um, or there was that wonderful guy who was like, I don't make arrests. I defuse the situation. Yeah. I talk to the people. I calm them down. I de-escalate. I separate the people so they aren't going to come at each other. Which is what you're supposed to Which do. Which is what you're supposed to do. That's what we want. <laughs> like, they were like, I'll change the system from the inside. And right. they had a rude awakening when they're, you know white sergeants or white supervisors are like, you can't do this. But um, I thought it was especially sad to see them wanting to change the system from inside and being on it. Like there were the people that they met at community meetings, you know, who were still like, we still don't trust the police. Right. Uh, Just because you're trying to work from the inside doesn't mean we're automatically going to trust you. Yeah. You have to still convince us. And so like beset on all sides by distrust and people out out to get them um also like so what's what's interesting and noteworthy about these particular this nybd12 is that they are all people of color it's not like white people who refuse to arrest black people it's like black people refusing to arrest black people right like they are made by the system to specifically police black men ages 14 to 29 right and it's it's like fucked up and so i don't know whenever there's a case where like a case of police brutality or police overreach or like a police shooting and it's like a a black cop doing it to a black uh uh like victim yeah or suspect the the other side is very quick to be like, well, you can't call it racism because the cop was black. And it's like, dude, it's a system. Right. It's a whole system. So, 
it's it's a very interesting thing because I don't know. It's a very frustrating movie to watch because you from from those twelve, I feel like you see a kind of policing that could be. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's and just isn't because and the system is so fucking broken. It's also it, it was frustrating to watch because uh, as I was watching it, I was like, I if it were me, I would move to New Jersey. Like, yeah, I but would New Jersey's stop. not going to be any better. We're, sure, but I mean, that's that's like what like, what these people aren't doing is quitting. They're staying in. They're like, I'm going to stay in this job that is constantly retaliating me and writing me up for doing my job. Yeah. Um, they still want to work it from the inside. Yeah. I would, I would have given up because I'm a coward. <laughs> I would move to a suburb where I'm just pulling over drunk teenagers and making them walk in a line. Right. Yeah, but you'd still have to get those summonses. You'd still have those quotas. That's the part that sucks is like, I feel like this is everywhere. Yeah. There was a really good NPR, uh, This American Life piece about the same thing like 10 years ago. Uh, I think probably before they outlawed the quotas, but like... Yeah, it was, it was, it was... That was also New York police. Yeah, it was very harrowing. It was very Kafka-esque. It was like, this is a fucked up police state. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, just like the other cops will harass them and like... It's like, what kind of weird fucking... I don't know. It's crazy. It needs to be a system, like... It's the sort of movie where you leave going, you know, like... Obviously, there should be independent review boards everywhere for police for police departments, but you know, you leave that term and you're like, why the hell hasn't that happened yet? Yeah. We're looking at this. This shows how broken things are. And then you just scream internally. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're almost to the hotel. Yeah. I think that uh, walking it out is a good. It's good for the soul. It's good for, good the, soul. for the heart. What I meant to say was talking it out is a good way to make the walk go faster. Oh, I see. I used to do that with cell phones back when phones were a thing. Not now. Now phones aren't a thing. I'm glad we could just talk as pals. <laughs> yeah. What is all this mud? Ew walk on the pavement like me. No. Fair enough. Alright, well we'll check in later. Yeah. Sometime tomorrow perhaps. Yeah. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> but we didn't check in after that. That's all we recorded. We did another day of the festival and then hurried back on Sunday to catch the Oscars at Jeff's house. It was a great experience, as it always is. I was able to publish some of my coverage of the fest on potmatters.com, and I'll link to those reviews in the comments. But I wanted to let you know this is probably the last episode you're going to hear if I'd see that. I had a lot of fun with this podcast, but we've kind of run out of energy for it. And before we started recording on this trip, I, I had to really sell Jeff on doing an episode about the fest. Jeff admitted he was, long story short, getting kind of sick of hearing his own voice and submitting his opinion to the world as if it mattered. I did remind him that our dedicated listeners actually quite like to hear his opinion, but it was clear we would just be kind of forcing it at that point. So this might just be the last you hear from us. 
We still go to movies on the regular and discuss what we're seeing. We just aren't meticulously documenting it. I would like to do another podcast someday or maybe a YouTube channel or something, so maybe you'll see more from us. And I'm going to continue publishing more work on potmatters.com about books and film and music. So you'll hear from me again for sure. But not sure where we go from here. But just rest assured, we are still seeing that and we're still sharing our thoughts just privately. Thank you to all of the listeners over the past year and a half who've given us uh, hits and likes and feedback. And thanks to all the wonderful guests we've had, like guests like Susan Quiesel, our main confidant, and Kate and Anna from Babes Watch Buffy, and everyone else who's been on our show. We loved having you. Until we see each other again, let's shake hands. I think I've said all I need to say. <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> How about yourself, Bob? Do you have any other notes? I don't think so. I think I'm good. All right. It's been great talking to you. You too, Jeff. Let's shake hands. Let's shake hands. Great. All right. <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening to everybody who's listening out there. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Bye.